You are now listening to British Brothers, the Full Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is part one of the season seven special. The last time I did an end of season special, I released both parts in one day and it almost did me in. So I'm reverting back to releasing both parts a week apart. Feel free to wait until next week if you want to listen to parts one and two back to back. If not, you'll just have to wait a week for part two. Before we get into this first part, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. Two facts that sound like both. Led Zeppelin wrote multiple songs about the Lord of the Rings. Rambolon, The Battle of Evermore and Misty Mountain Hop all contain clear references to the famous novel. Never knew that about Led Zeppelin, although I'm not much of a fan. The show's final opening icebreaker segment is this. Random quote of the day. Selfishness must always be forgiven, you know, because there is no hope of a cure. Jane Austen. This week's case was suggested via Instagram by listeners Anna Billingsley and her granny, who are both big fans of the show. We're in a few locations for this story, but the main one is the town of Hyde in Thameside, Greater Manchester. Here are five quickfire facts about Hyde. Number one. During the Industrial Revolution, at one stage there were 40 working cotton mills in Hyde. Number two, the name Hyde, spelt H-Y-D-E, derives from the word Hyde, spelt H-I-D-E, meaning a measure of land roughly equivalent to 120 acres. Number three, the town was a stronghold of the Chartist movement, a working class movement for political reform in the UK in the mid-19th century. Number four, the centre of Hyde was not served by a railway until 1858. Can you tell I was struggling with these facts? And number five, Hyde has a history with several notorious British murderers. Our villain this week has links there. Ian Brady and Myra Hindley, aka the Moors murderers, were arrested in Hattersley, an area of Hyde. I covered their story in the season one special. And double murderer Dale Cregan lured police constables Nicola Hughes and Fiona Bone to an address in Mottram, a village just outside Hyde, and murdered them when they arrived at the scene. Mottram gets another mention later in this episode, so keep your ears out for that. As of the 2011 census, the estimated population of Hyde was 34,003. Let me quickly advise you that this podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. As always, listener discretion is advised. This week, our villain is one of the most notorious serial killers in the UK and the world. If you were to type world's most prolific serial killers into a search engine, the person at the top is who I'll be discussing over the next two episodes. As is typically the case though, the number of murders he was charged with is significantly lower than the actual figure. During his murder trial, our villain this week was only charged with 15 murders, but a report from the subsequent inquiry suggests that the real figure is around 250, with 218 victims being positively identified. Just let that sink in for a second. 
218 confirmed victims, with at least 30 other deaths thought to have been at the hands of our villain. With that in mind, allow me to introduce the man who would later be dubbed Dr. Death by the media, Harold Shipman. Born in the East Midlands city of Nottingham on January 14th, 1946, Harold Frederick Shipman Jr. was welcomed to the world by his mum, Vera, and his dad, Harold Frederick Shipman Sr. No doubt, to avoid confusion, Harold would go on to be referred by his middle name, Fred, but for the remainder of this podcast, I'll refer to him as Harold. The second of three children to his parents, Harold lived with his family on the Bestwood Estate in Nottingham. The council estate was perfect for a working-class family of five. Harold Sr. was a lorry driver, meaning he likely spent many days and nights away from home, which left Vera in charge of the kids most of the time in a stay-at-home mum role. Harold's siblings were Pauline, his older sister, who was born eight years before him in 1938, and Clive, his younger brother, who came four years after him in 1950. Mr. and Mrs. Shipman were deeply religious, with Methodism being their faith of choice. For what reason, we don't know, but Harold was his mother's favourite child. Perhaps it's because he was the married couple's first son. Because of that, the mother and son bond may have been more prevalent with Harold than with Clive. In return, Harold worshipped the ground Vera walked on, with the two becoming incredibly close. I'm talking best friend close. Forming a strong bond with one's parents is good, but the downside is that whatever values they instil in you will become your gospel. In Harold's case, Vera burdened him with a superiority complex that led to her eldest son becoming a bit of a learner throughout his school years. An obsession with believing you are better than your peers and wanting to one-up them constantly is a surefire way of restricting the number of friends in your circle. Having minimal friends at school didn't stop bright Harold from getting good grades though. In 1957, when he was 11, Harold passed his 11+, and as a result gained entry to High Pavement Grammar School in Nottingham. I feel like we've discussed 11-plus exams previously on the show, but as a quick refresher, it was an exam taken by pupils in their last year of primary school, the results of which essentially determined which secondary schools they could enter. I don't think it's used much nowadays, I certainly don't remember doing it. At High Pavement, Harold continued to excel both in and out of the classroom. He was a keen rugby player and excelled in both the school leagues and amateur leagues on weekends. He even became the school rugby team's vice-captain in his last year. That superiority complex I alluded to undoubtedly played some part in his selection for that role. As well as rugby, Harold was a keen runner and part of the school's cross-country team. It's bizarre to think that someone involved in so many sports was a loner, that's the picture I got painted of Harold whilst doing my research. In the summer of 1963, Harold had just finished his penultimate year at Hyfe Pavement Grammar School. That June, an event would occur in his life that was significant enough to be thought of as the switch that turned him from a bright and lonely lad into a sadistic and prolific serial killer. The event I'm referring to was the death of his beloved mum, Vera, which occurred on June 21st, 1963. Harold was 17 at the time. Earlier that year, Vera was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. Not much information is available about her diagnosis, but it seems as if her doctors may have informed her that the best thing they could do was to ease her suffering by way of administering the strong opioid painkiller morphine. Morphine works by blocking pain signals from travelling along the nerves to the brain. 
It helps alleviate the severe pain caused by diseases such as cancer. Young Harold, who was extra close to his mother, remember, took a keen interest in her declining health and closely observed how the doctors cared for her. By injecting Vera with morphine, they helped her through her final days by ensuring she was in as little pain as possible. Harold could visibly see the relief fleeing from Vera once she received her injections and appeared to have made a mental note of it. Experts are confident that this experience is what led to Harold Shipman forming his modus operandi as he would go on to inject hundreds of his own patients with the same drug as his mother's doctors had with her. The only difference was that in Harold's case, he used a lethal amount of the drug to kill his patients, most of whom weren't even suffering from terminal health problems. Isn't it crazy that opium, morphine, codeine and heroin are all derived from the milky latex found in the opium poppy's unripe seed capsule? I found out that opium poppies are legal to grow in the UK, but it's against the law to process them in any way, which technically includes picking them. Back to Vera. She was 43 when she died, and Harold was devastated. Another theory about his murderous, decades-long killing spree was that he wanted to repeatedly revisit his mother's death. Killing his patients in the manner he did was his way of doing so. A year after his mum died, Harold Shipman graduated from High Pavement Grammar School and was deciding what route he wanted to take in life. In a decision perhaps inspired by seeing how much they helped his dying mum, Harold decided to become a doctor. There's a gap of a year in the timeline between the summer of 1964 and the autumn of 1965. I think that's because Harold failed his first university entrance exam. I'm going out on a limb here, but I think that failed test meant he couldn't enrol at his chosen university in the autumn of 1964 and thus had to wait another year to reset his entrance exam. I could be wrong, but makes sense, right? Once he passed his exam the following year, Harold enrolled at the University of Leeds in West Yorkshire, where he studied medicine at the university's medical school. It's so creepy to think that I've driven past that building. It's situated on Clarendon Way, the same road Leeds General Infirmary is on. Harold did well in medical school, no shock there, and graduated in 1970 after spending five years there. Before I tell you about Harold's first role upon completion of his medical degree, there's a new character in this story that I need to introduce. She met Harold Shipman on the top deck of a double-decker bus headed to Leeds from Weatherby, a town in the city of Leeds district. Her name was Primrose May Oxtaby, and she was born in April 1949. Primrose was the youngest of two children, both daughters, to her parents George and Edna Oxtaby. Mary Oxtaby, Primrose's older sister, was born 13 years before her in 1936. By the time Primrose came along, George was 44 and Edna was 39. Rumour has it that they were desperately hoping for a boy, having already welcomed a baby girl to the world, and were bitterly disappointed when Primrose was born. That created a load of undeserved tension between Primrose and her parents. The Oxtabays were old school. They'd lived through and survived two world wars and perhaps had the notion of wanting to birth a son to continue the family name into the next generation. As Harold's parents were, Primrose's mum and dad were deeply religious, though I can't confirm what their faith of choice was. Their strict rules meant that Primrose's exposure to childhood activities such as playdates and meeting other children at the local park were not accessible to her. She didn't do well at school, a direct contrast to Harold, and left secondary school with barely any qualifications. 
Worse still, Primrose was borderline illiterate, so she had no choice but to go straight into full-time work after leaving school at 16. Going to college was not on the cards for her due to her poor education. She soon got a job as a window dresser in Leeds, which meant she was a retail worker who arranged window displays in shops. I'd never heard of that job until researching this episode. When Harold and Primrose met on that double-decker bus, they clicked instantly. They soon elevated their relationship from being merely fellow bus passengers to a doting couple after their first date at a coffee shop. They were a perfect match for each other if you think about it. Primrose hadn't had the best of lives growing up in a strict family and her education suffered as a result. To meet a man with Harold's book smarts and have him show an interest in her must have been a dream. On the other side of the coin, Harold had met someone he probably felt that he could control and certainly would have felt like he was her superior. It wasn't long before one thing led to another and the newly formed couple were expecting their first child. At the behest of their respective parents, Harold and Primrose got married at the local registry office on November 5th, 1966. Their shotgun wedding was a low-key affair. By all accounts, only Harold Sr. and George witnessed the ceremony. No groomsmen or bridesmaids were allowed. Harold Jr. couldn't even have a best man present. Not that he'd necessarily have been able to choose one, given his loner lifestyle. Primrose's relationship with her parents broke down completely after she met Harold. Their already contemptuous view of their youngest daughter only grew, given her young age and premarital pregnancy. Once married, the pair moved into a flat whilst Harold finished his degree. Their first child, Sarah, was born in 1967. She was the eldest of four children to the Shipmans, with the siblings Christopher, David and Sam being born in 1971, 1979 and 1982 respectively. Each child was given a new identity after their father's murder trial, as was Primrose, but I'm getting way ahead of myself. Let's bring the story back to 1970 after Harold graduated from Leeds School of Medicine. His first job in medicine was that of a junior doctor, a role that was referred to as a houseman at the time. That, apparently, is the former term used to describe the only role available to medical students that have just completed their degree. It was the initial step he needed to take to become a general practitioner, or GP. He secured his junior doctor role at Pontefract General Infirmary, PGI, in the market town of Pontefract in West Yorkshire. PGI was replaced in 2010 by what is now Pontefract Hospital. It was built on the same site. Whilst at PGI, a role in which Harold remained for just short of four years, it's thought he began to perfect his modus operandi. I won't discuss too many of his murders in this first part, but I will mention a few names of patients who died while in Harold's care. There's no way I can mention every one of his suspected victims due to the sheer volume, but I'll do my best. The Shipman Inquiry was a report into Harold's murders chaired by Dame Janet Smith. Of Harold's time at PGI, Dame Smith said in the sixth report that he had unlawfully killed three men between April and May 1972. They were Thomas Columbine, 54, John Brewster, 84, and James Rhodes, 71. A further 12 deaths were suspected as being attributed to Harold during his time at PGI, meaning he possibly murdered 15 of his innocent patients in his first medical role. Each of the six reports in the Shipman Inquiry is available online with further information, but be warned, they are truly ginormous in scope. It's important to note that the inquiry began after Harold had already been convicted of 15 murders and concluded in 2005, a year after his death. 
Apologies for the spoiler if this is a story you're not overly familiar with, but it's one of those complex ones that needs a few facts thrown in here and there to give the story some context. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. In early 1974, Harold secured his first GP role at the now derelict Abraham Armrod Medical Centre in the West Yorkshire town of Todmorden. The building was closed down in 2004, but there's some wonderful photographs of the decrepit building available online. They were taken by some passionate urban exploration enthusiasts. During his short time at Todmorden, Harold grew his reputation as a well-respected and trusted family doctor whom everyone in the community was fond of. He ingratiated himself in community functions such as the Rochdale Canal Commission, but the locals had no idea what was going on behind closed doors. Harold had developed a dangerous addiction to the drug pethidine, also known as meperidine, and commonly sold under the brand name Demerol. Pethidine is a synthetic opioid pain medication typically taken by an injection to the user's thigh. According to the NHS website, it is most commonly used to alleviate pain during labour. Harold became so addicted to pethidine that his veins would eventually collapse due to the frequency of them being pierced with a needle. He began experiencing blackouts throughout the six-month period of his drug usage, with his colleagues and patients believing they were the result of Harold's so-called epilepsy. He got away with it for so long because he was prescribing numerous patients the drug, but keeping the supplies for himself. Only when the stock levels continued to deplete were Harold's patients questioned about their prescriptions. It was a shock to everyone at the practice to learn that none of his patients had ever been prescribed pethidine. A standard single dose of pethidine is 100 milligrams. It's thought that Harold falsely prescribed around 70,000 milligrams of the stuff, which equates to 700 doses. Using some basic maths, over six months, Harold, on average, was injecting himself between three and four times a day with pethidine. No wonder his bloody veins collapsed. Much smaller quantities of morphine were also suspected of having been obtained by Harold, but his main drug of choice back then was pethidine. The other doctors at the practice confronted Harold about the missing drugs, to which he replied that he had developed an addiction back in his uni days. The blackouts weren't due to epilepsy after all. Former detective George McKeating claims that Harold not only used to inject the veins in his arms, but he also apparently injected his penis with pethidine to get high. Harold was fired from the Todmorden practice in September 1975, and two months later, November 1975, Harold was arrested by McKeating. He was charged with the illegal possession of drugs and forging prescriptions. McKeaton turned up at the subsequent hearing at Halifax Magistrates Court in February 1976 ready to give evidence against Harold, but when he got there, he was informed that it had already concluded. Expecting Harold to be struck off by the General Medical Council, GMC, McKeaton was no doubt shocked when he learned that a small fine of £600 was the only punishment Harold received after being charged with forgery. That, and he was required to enter a drug rehabilitation program in York, North Yorkshire. Surprisingly, Harold was not struck off by the GMC. It's frightening to think how many deaths could have been prevented had he been struck off. Before we move on, let's go over some deaths that were attributed to Harold Shipman. Dame Smith states in one of the Shipman Inquiry reports that Harold may have killed seven people during his time in Todmorden, three of whom died on the same day. One death in particular has definitely been attributed to Harold, with some resources claiming it to have been his first ever murder. 
Eva Lyons was a 71-year-old grandma with terminal cancer when her GP, Dr. Harold Shipman, paid her a visit on March 17, 1975. Her family described her as a spirited woman with plenty of pep who was still living her best life despite being terminally ill. If she was in pain, she certainly didn't let on. She remained involved with her local church, played tennis regularly and even enjoyed some amateur dramatics. March 17th was the day before Eva's 72nd birthday and two days before her granddaughter Debbie's 14th birthday. Debbie and Eva used to sew together and formed a close bond. Once at her bedside, Harold examined Eva and gave her an intravenous injection into the back of her hand. Richard, Eva's husband, stood next to the GP and watched on as he did so, trusting him implicitly. Her loving husband had no idea that his wife was injected with a fatal dose of diamorphine, which I believe is another name for medical heroin. Once Harold had injected Eva, he casually turned to Richard and asked if he could be made a cup of coffee whilst the painkiller took effect. I'll check on her in a few minutes, Harold said to Richard reassuringly. Once their coffees had been drunk, the two men went back into the room. Harold then informed Richard that his wife had passed away. Eva's death certificate had her cause of death as cancer. The paperwork confirming that was filled out by Harold Shipman. He did this a lot. As a trusted doctor in a time where everything was hand or typewritten with minimal audit trails, Harold was free to kill his patients and put down whatever he wanted as their cause of death. Why would anyone not believe the word of a respected community doctor? The volume of diamorphine given to Eva Lyons has led to experts believing that Harold wanted her to die whilst he was at the house rather than after he'd left. You think he would have preferred the death to have occurred with him out of the picture, but having his victims die in front of him was clearly something he found cathartic. It takes us back to the theory of him reliving his mum's death over and over. She died in front of his eyes and so would his victims. Eva Lyons' death is commonly attributed to being Harold's first official victim because any deaths before 1975 are too difficult to prove and no records were kept. This is why there's such a large discrepancy regarding his total victim count. The most common figure is 15, which is how many murders he was found guilty of in court. The second most common figure is 215, sometimes even 218, which is the number of murders thought to have been committed by Harold between 1975 and 1998. The final revised estimate is 250 victims, as stated in the sixth and final shipment inquiry report of Dame Janet Smith's three-year judicial inquiry into the killings. Harold Primrose and their children left Todmorden after the disgraced GP completed his rehab in York and he wouldn't work again as a GP until late 1977. In the interim, Harold appears to have spent time working in other medical roles in the cities of Doncaster and Durham. Eventually, the Shipman family settled in the village of Mottram, just outside Hyde, after Harold secured a GP role at the Donnybrook Medical Centre in the town in October 1977. It was a group practice with seven other doctors. He once again ingratiated himself in the local community, becoming a parent governor at one of his kids' schools, whilst Primrose earned some extra cash for the growing family by becoming a part-time childminder. She also reportedly worked in a sandwich shop in the area. The shipman's eldest child, Sarah, has gone on record to explain how awful life was growing up with Harold as her father. He was a persistent bully who ran the home like a drill sergeant. As soon as she was old enough and capable of doing so, Sarah left home as she couldn't cope anymore. One of Harold's colleagues at Donnybrook recalled hearing him shouting down the phone at Primrose that nobody was allowed to eat their tea until he got home from work. The bullying wasn't restricted to Harold's home life, though. He would regularly make fun of and put down colleagues he believed were inferior to him 
much like he had with people his whole life. Despite his tantrums and occasional hair-trigger temper, Harold's time in Hyde did not raise many suspicions from a criminal perspective. Having said that, it's thought that Harold killed around 70 or more of his patients whilst working at Donnybrook during his 15 years there, which is over a quarter of his estimated victims. Harold appeared on an old BBC Current Affairs programme called World in Action in 1982, in which he speaks about mental health and the power of caring for patients in the local community. It's pretty haunting stuff. I tried to find the full episode, but it's not available online as far as I could tell. There's a couple of clips on YouTube, but nothing else. This doesn't add much to the story, but I may as well tell you anyway. Harold's dad, Harold Sr., passed away on January 5th, 1985. I'm not sure what his cause of death was, by which I mean I don't believe his death was at the hands of his son, and it doesn't appear to have affected Harold Jr.'s killing spree. I'm only telling you this to keep the story chronological. Harold Jr. then started a solo practice out of the same Donnybrook building in January 1992 before securing premises of his own at 21 Market Street in Hyde in August 1992. He named it The Surgery. Serving thousands of patients, Harold Shipman took his killing to new levels at The Surgery. With his wife Primrose working as his receptionist, The Surgery is where Harold killed the majority of his victims and is also where he began to get sloppy and was ultimately arrested. I'll touch on this murder more in part two, but the final victim of Harold Shipman was 81-year-old Kathleen Grundy, who at one point was the mayoress of Hyde. Kathleen died on June 24th, 1998 after last being seen alone with Harold. Her death certificate, filled out by Harold, stated that her cause of death was old age, despite her being fit and healthy. Harold was arrested after Angela Woodruff, Kathleen's daughter, grew suspicious after reading her mum's will. The crudely typewritten document excluded Angela and Kathleen's other kids from it, but explicitly stated that she was to leave £386,000 to her GP, Harold Shipman. Kathleen's body was exhumed in August 1998, and a subsequent post-mortem found high levels of diamorphine in her muscle tissue. September 7th, 1998 will forever go down in history as the day the world's most prolific serial killer was finally caught. And that concludes part one of the story of British serial killer Harold Shipman. Thanks again Anna Billingsley and her granny for suggesting that case. I've got four new reviews to read this week. Odd Kid Sitakt, don't know how you say that, sorry, left a five-star review on Apple Podcast USA. Titled, Like Having a Friend in the Car With Me, it reads, Listening to Stuart is the best part of my commute. His podcast stays straight to the facts and are easy to follow. His voice is calm and relaxing, and the accent is delightful. Abby Favell left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com, titled, Helped Me Fall Asleep. It reads, I love listening to these to help me fall asleep at night. Weird, I know, but Stuart has such a calming voice and makes every episode gripping, yet casual. I'd love it if you could find something in Kidderminster. I'll make a note of that, Abby, thank you. Emma Beatty left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com, titled, Great Podcast. It reads, Hi, Love the podcast and have recommended to many friends. Love that it's British cases and enjoy the interview episodes. My suggestion is a case involving a girl I went to high school with, Jana Hopps, in Whitley Bay. Her murderer lived in the street next to me too. I'll add that to the spreadsheet, Emma, thank you. And finally, Gemma Parrish left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. Titled Fantastic Podcast, it reads, I really enjoy this podcast. I listen while travelling to work. Great length of the show. 
a great variety of cases old and new, and I really prefer that they are all solved cases. I am now up to date, so I'm enjoying killer stories following your collaboration. Keep up the excellent work. I am collaborating again with Bobby of Killer Stories in a couple of weeks, so listen out for that episode. It's one of my off-season specials coming up. Thank you again, Odd Keeksy Tact. I don't know how to say it. Abby, Emma, and Gemma for leaving the show such lovely reviews. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode. You can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser, or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee, you can find the links for each on my website. Thank you and welcome to my newest Patreon members, Lauren Keller, Elaine Tyler and Daniel Briston. By signing up, Lauren, Elaine and Daniel now have access to fortnightly bonus episodes and ad-free regular episodes released a day or two earlier than everyone else. If those benefits are of interest to you, why not consider joining? Thank you, Paul H., for buying me seven beers via buymeacoffee.com slash britishmurders. Paul said, Finally caught up after binge listening to all episodes in the last three weeks or so. Have seven beers on me, one for each episode. Keep up the fantastic work, and I look forward to hearing more great episodes. Top man, Stu. Thank you so much, Paul. You're a legend, mate. Please continue emailing case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You will get the episode covered, and you'll get a cheeky shout-out. Next week, I'll be releasing part two of this end-of-season special. I'll primarily be focusing on the 15 murders Harold Shipman was found guilty of during his trial, as well as the trial itself and the case's aftermath. That's it for part one. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio! Cheerio!